Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. This audio program has been carefully packed to the legal limit with a weekly allowance of non-governmentally approved deep thoughts per square minute of podcast. And now, here are your hosts, Judah and Noah. Yeah, you know, the hardest thing about this is that it feels like we should be recording all the time. Like stream of consciousness yeah, recording. Because yeah, because we, we say stuff and it's like, oh, that would have been good. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's what recording does to you. Does it does. It's the same thing when I was when I was thinking about music all the time. You know, you'd like play around the guitar, like, oh, that was great. I better record that. <laughs> and then you like set up the recording device, and nothing comes, and it's just like, what was that again? <laughs> and then even if you kind of remember what it was, it's just never the same. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have the same vitality to it. Yeah. Fuck it. Let's just call this quits. <laughs> We'll just cut you. come over and we'll talk to you. How about that? Can we do that? Can we have like right. living room conversations where yeah, yeah. everyone shuts up except you and me? We just sit there. <laughs> is that realistic? No. No, it's, no not. it's not. So why the hell is anyone listening to this now? Why do people tune into podcasts? Because <laughs> they find them interesting. I know. I do too. I do too. I listen to podcasts. I like them. Well, I usually get to like four or five episodes in and I'm like, this sucks. <laughs> I'm so fickle. I can only handle it for, I mean, there's maybe two or three podcasts that I have been subscribed to for a long time. Mm-hmm. And the rest of them, I'll listen for a little while. And then I'm like, okay, I understand. I got it. I got it. Enough. You Done. Unsubscribe to one podcast. Which one? Ours. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty good. It's awesome. I really enjoy it. <laughs> All right. There's some funny shit in there. How much more can we milk out of this before we lose the entire audience? What are we going to talk about here? Hmm. Oh, I think... <clears throat> this is a perfect example, by the way, because I remember us saying, you know, we should be talking about that in the podcast. I know. And then we turned the mic on, and I can't remember what it was. Uh, well, I, I believe we were talking about... <laughs> The difference in, in the way that you and I think. Oh, yeah. And that we have such radically different ways of thinking that <clears throat> you're much more visually oriented. And, like, you know, you, you work with the Bagua, with the, with the trigrams, and you've got that mastered. And I look at that. Uh, don't say well, that. Well, okay, That's, you don't have it mastered. On. Okay, but you, you're, you're, you're well-versed. Let's say you're well-versed with the Bagua. I, I know what they look like. You know more I can than see that. it in my head. You know more than that. <laughs> I, I've sat with you long enough to know you know more than that. And and that I look at that, and I I my eyes glaze over, like I literally just glaze over. But I can read, and this is what baffles you is yeah. that I can read some crazy thing from Rudolf Steiner, and that I that goes on for. Pages. Yeah. Many pages. Many. One paragraph and you, can be three pages. <laughs> I, it, it'll take me like, you, you've seen this because you've lent me books. <laughs> so it'll take me like three weeks to read three pages. Mm. That's Steiner, not uncommon like with that. Steiner. Right? And it's rough so, going. 
rough going. Whereas for so me, so you're saying that you actually think in words. I think in words, and I, I see, I get images, but more than anything, I think in words. Yeah. I definitely don't think in words, and I, that probably explains why I'm not very good at articulating. I, I can be good at articulating what I'm saying, but that was another thing that we were discussing is that I have kind of a very incomplete way of, of expressing myself. I'll grab whatever happens to be lying on the table and sort of use that to illustrate a point based upon what I know is a common understanding. Mm. And mm-hmm. I'm pretty terrible when it comes to explicating things. And I've been noticing that in listening to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really not very good. Like I, I listen back and I think... <laughs> Really? Like, that's how you decided to describe this? You couldn't have thought of... I could think of a hundred better ways of doing it when I'm listening back, but at the moment, I'm just kind of grabbing whatever seems to be around. I'm not, I'm not a very well-formatted kind mm. of speaker. Mm. Well, I think it takes time and it takes, pra- it takes practice and it takes time. I know for me, I've done a tremendous amount of public speaking, so I've had this opportunity to hone... Um, cultivating my thoughts and even then I still struggle like uh, you know it's doing a something like this is different than giving a talk right and so I, I I notice that when I'm in speaker mode and I'm I'm giving a talk I'm in a realm that's really comfortable and familiar for me hmm. and I can command the I can command the the material and I can provide myself the space that I need to allow the next right thought to come through and and stream it that way kind of more of um opening up and allowing the imagery or the words to come through mm-hmm. that i need to describe what i'm what i'm teaching mm-hmm. whereas with in a situation like this there's not so much that nobody can see me nobody can you know they're not watching somebody give a talk and we have no cues there's right. no you know Right. No one writes. <laughs> no one's telling us what they think. We have no idea. It's not going out into a void, like I said before. It's probably so just lonely. a bunch of Russian bots listening. <laughs> yeah, that's right, exactly. But, yeah, I think that that's a big thing, too, is that it's the cues that you get from your audience that yeah. let you know whether or not they're, with, they're still with you. And right. In I this can... environment, you just don't have that, which which makes me feel like I really do have to tighten up my game when it comes to describing what I'm talking about. Mm, yeah, you got to be even more precise in it and more dialed in. Mm-hmm. You know, looking, giving a talk, I can look into the audience and I can see in people's eyes if they're with me or not. Right. I can feel the room. Yeah, I've had that experience. I used to teach Tai Chi Chuan and, and mm-hmm. Qigong. And uh, sometimes I would do uh, things in the class that were sort of like a little mini lecture to get people familiarized with basic concepts. And it's true when you have a more limited scope that you're massaging, you have a basic set of information that you want to convey, it's a lot easier to uh, to make a presentational case that's coherent. Mm. What we tend to do that I really love that makes it really interesting is that we're drawing from so many different things. And so it's kind of the cross-connectivity between different worlds of meaning. Mm-hmm. That is where the juice is, I think, in a lot of our conversations. So it's difficult if you don't have a familiarity with all those various worlds that we're trying to connect to. Right. But I think that we, we've been pretty good about not pulling too many things in at the same time. And, but there, there definitely are we're, – we're thinking that it might be worth 
trying to make a more coherent presentational case for some of the major yeah. realms that we're talking about. Like referring to the Bagua, it, it's almost impossible to do that without spending a fair amount of time getting familiar with it. Mm-hmm. You know, so for me, there's a mm-hmm. lot of resonance in that world that I would love to be able to share with people. It's almost impossible to do because no one no one knows it. Yeah, you start talking about heaven over earth and... I mean, Bagua is almost the wrong word for it because, you know, most people think of a martial art when you say Bagua, if, if they know what Bagua means. Mm-hmm. They, it's associated with martial art, but that's not what I'm talking about. It's I always the think of the I Ching. I always think of the I Ching. Well, I Ching is not the Bagua. Right. Uh, See, that, sh- that shows you how little I actually <laughs> <laughs> So basically, the Bagua are the arrangements of the trigrams, and the trigrams are what make up the hexagrams, which is what the I Ching is based on. Ah, So it's, a, it's, yeah. it's an integrated system, but it's yeah. not the same thing. Not the same thing. You know, and then it's the, independent of the I Ching. It, it, it stands alone from the I Ching. I believe it does. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to know mm. precisely. We don't know whether... The Bagua preceded the I Ching? We don't really know. Mm-hmm. We don't really know whether there was a system of meaning associated with the Bagua that was entirely independent from the system of meaning that's now associated with the hexagrams of the I Ching. Hmm. Those two systems are independent, but we don't know whether the system of meaning that definitely sprung up around uh the I Ching is something that is related to or completely separate from whatever system of meaning there may be within the Bagua because the, the Bagua systems of meaning are, there's many of them, right? And from my point of view, most of the ones that exist to this day that have like a kind of historical pedigree, they don't make any sense. Mm-hmm. But I think that the, there's a code in there and there's enough information in the history of the meaning of these terms that all of these different systems agree upon, that we can come up with a coherent theory of what it's about. Mm. And I've actually made a video about that subject, which I will include in the show notes, and also a <laughs> academic paper, which I will include in the show notes, uh, that describes one possible way of having a coherent theory of what these symbols mean, which means that each of the symbols, which consists of solid and broken lines, there has to be a reason why the particular configuration of solid and broken lines means the traditionally associated concept. Right. That's something that's absent from all the other systems of meaning. If you look at feng shui or if you look at the martial arts, they have an association of a variety of different techniques with each of the symbols of the trigrams. You say the simple question, why? Why does ward off correspond with heaven? Three young lines? No one knows. As far as I can tell, there's no, there's, there's just no effort to make that. I think you can make a case for it, but it's not part of the system. Like you would think that, okay, if you have a symbol, there's a reason why that symbol represents something. With a word, maybe not so much. And this is an interesting thing when it comes down to the way of thinking. Right. 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 With a word, supposedly it's pretty arbitrary that there's an association of a particular term or sound with some, whatever it represents, whether it's an idea or a thing, right? But with a symbol, like for instance, uh, the cross has a lot of symbolic representation. Mm -hmm. You know, the resonance, everyone knows what that symbol means and it operates on many different levels. 
it would be very weird to have a symbol representing all those things that had nothing to do with it. Like if it was a just a a, a geometric, if, if it was a square, like if they had a square representing the crucifixion of Christ, that would be very weird. When you have a symbol that's so obviously a code, right? It seems like okay, what was the underlying thinking? that brought about this symbolic system. That's what I'm really interested in in that. Mm. It seems to me that the languages, or the language of symbolism, and we can look at alchemy as a classic one. Alchemy is a a classic language of symbols. Hmm. And it seems like it's a way to communicate profound information that you don't want just anybody to get a hold of. Mm. So it's it's a way to communicate information in secrecy, in plain sight, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that it's operating like a code. I think it's op- I think the language of symbols operates as a code. Yeah. Well, I think that's definitely true in the uh, public sphere that we have kind of a vocabulary of symbols that occurs within uh, entertainments, for instance. There's some very interesting uh, analyses of symbolism within movies, for instance, Mm -hmm. that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. You quite often will see uh, the same types of themes played over and over. And it's it's not like necessarily a specific symbol, like a particular glyph or something like that. It's a constellation of visual and dramatic elements that bring about a resonant kind of quality. Mm. So one of the things that you'll hear some people on the right complain about is that there's a lot of imagery of like the guy who wrote the the Redneck Manifesto. I can't remember his name right now. He talks a lot about how there's nothing more shameful in the symbolism of Hollywood than being a redneck or a uh, white trash, something like that. Right? So it's a symbol of a type of person. It's a caricature, basically, mm-hmm. that shows up a lot and plays a particular role. Usually it's the role of being the object of, uh, of hatred or, or despising or you know, someone who represents everything that's wrong with the world. Right. right? And Jim Goad? Goad? That's correct. Jim Goad. That's the Goad. guy. Problematic book, but uh, well worth reading. I think very interesting. It's mm. sort of like the Howard Zinn of the the white underclass. Mm. You know, he he writes a book that's not only about his personal circumstance, but also uh, does a lot of historical research, and it's fascinating. Mm. He's also got a pretty intense sense of humor that at times is hilarious, and at times is a little tiring. Mm. You know, he's a complicated guy. I'm not 100% on board with Jim Goad, but I think he made a valuable contribution and he has suffered as a consequence of it. From what I can tell, you know, it's a very unpopular point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that's that. We're, well, you know, it's interesting thinking about, you know, in ancient times that that there was a lot of symbolism as language. Yeah, well, I guess language, certainly written language, wasn't as accessible to everyone, so it was a code at one time. Right. Right? Right, right. The hieroglyphs. 
the hieroglyphs and even the Latin, you know? Yeah. I mean, basically it was just the priests who could read what was in the Bible. Right. And that was Martin Luther's great innovation was, hey, let's put it in the vernacular. Mm-hmm. You know, we want Bibles for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, today we're in a world where we're not using symbols so much as code, but icons. Yeah. Right? So icons are the new language. Which well, is dumbed dumbed down symbols, really? I guess all yeah. It's so. it's sort of the the sign. What is it? The, the 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 people who prefer the symbol to the thing signified. Hmm. Uh, hmm. That that's basically New Babylon. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the it's the image and the projection of the image. The simulation that takes on greater importance than the thing that was represented. So reality we get further and further away from because not only do you have the initial representation of the thing, but then you have the commentary on that representation and then the re-representation and then they do the remake of the movie, Mm. right? Mm. And then they turn it into a series, Mm -hmm. right? And then everyone gets the game and then they have the shirts and the teacup. Teacups, the teacups, coffee cups, all those teacups that people are making with the images on them. <laughs> yeah, and further and further dilution happens. Yeah, so right? then it it becomes in a in at the same time it loses significance, but it has greater meaning because of the of it's like the poverty of the image takes even more cultural weight as people hang their lives on these things. Well, oh boy, you know, what's coming up for me hearing hearing where we're going here is that <laughs> as as things get more and more diluted um well, diluted and diluted. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. both really. Um and the more weight gets put on, you know, uh on the slogan or the the cup that coffee cup or the shirt with the cross on it now like jesus died for my sins and has no care for like who christ really was and what he was really doing oh right? man that's such a you thorn know? that's such a thicket that you just opened up i know there. i did i understand where i'm going with this is that is that it becomes it holds more and more weight for the Oh boy, this is going to sound so bad uh, for the more and more simple-minded. It holds more and more weight for the people who can't. There actually ain't nothing wrong with simple-minded, man. Grow. I'm not saying there is. <laughs> That's how I know this sounds bad, but just just hear me out through this, everybody. Is that that when you have like when you say you have something like something so profound as as the crucifixion of Christ and and what it, it really signifies. Right. And you have somebody who's really spiritually adept, has spent many hours in meditation and contemplative prayer and, you know, really plunging into the depths of of, of that world. There's a, such a deep, rich meaning there for that person. But that takes a lot of work and activity and... Not something that everyone's going to be able to do. Right. But put Whether it, they would want to right. or not, it's right. but, not for everyone. Right. But turn it into a coffee mug, a t-shirt, a tattoo, a slogan, and 
all of a sudden, you know, Jesus died for my sins, cross. Um, now anyone can wear that. And, and then it becomes really like, boy, that's about as much of it as they can grok. And, and it holds tremendous weight for them. Well, I think there's, you know, like most things, there's kind of two sides to this story. And uh, the double-edged sword is not only cutting into the richness of the meaning of the, you know, because the thing is that the richness of the meaning is something that's very personal, you know? Yeah. What, what are you just No, I just, I just got that, that, that <laughs> the more and more it loses its, its inherent meaning, the more meaning it gains in other yeah, that's what I was saying before. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, part of that is is unavoidable in yeah. a certain sense. It's like things play themselves out. It's like when you have a realization, right? If it's a truly profound realization, at the moment it occurs, you're going to feel like nothing you've ever experienced before. Mm-hmm. It's something that just transforms. You are in a different place. Something has occurred. And that moment is unlike anything else, right? It's gone pretty much as soon as you notice it, right? And you're lucky to be able to remember it, mm-hmm. you know? And if you can cherish it and hold it as some little kind of light, you know, it starts as an explosion, right? As, as like a burst. And then if you're lucky, you can carry a little bit of it with you. Right. But it's always going to be, as other experiences occur, it's always going to kind of get whittled down. But if it was a truly important thing, you're going to carry it with you in one way or another, right? Although as time goes on, you're going to be further and further from that inspirational moment. And that is just the way these things are, right? Mm-hmm. So that same thing happens culturally. But that that moment, it might start, it gets further and further away, but the impact that it has on you actually can deepen, well, yes, that's right. Pre- with, that, with you're carrying it with you, with more experience too, right. right? You're carrying it with you, right? You picked it up, you took it, you, you know, it happened. You picked it up, you turned it over a few times, and you took it home with you, right? 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 So now it's it's going to be deep inside of you, but it's not going to have the initial mm-hmm. impact, right? Right? This is why I very rarely even try and describe to people spiritual experiences that I have. Yeah, I almost, I pretty much never I, do. No, because they're not <laughs> translatable, and and they, and it had meaning for me. Right, it had meaning for me, and if I try to describe that meaning to somebody else, it falls flat. Yeah, I don't even really remember what most of them were. Yeah, um, and yeah, I feel like at a certain point you carry something and it's in you and it's part of you and you can't really know it any better than you would know exactly who you are. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're playing roles, mm-hmm. right? And so we may have a storyline about what it is that we're doing, but we don't really know what roles we're playing, right? We don't know exactly what our place is. So we can only do the best with what we're given. You know, that's really it. It's just, we have experiences. They occur to us. We process them in one way or another, and we can only do the best with what we're given with that. You know, God will sort out the rest, what it fundamentally means of significance. Various people have different interpretations. Don't worry about any of that shit. Right. That's why it, one of the things I've been rolling around in my mind lately is it doesn't matter what I, quote, do 
in life as far as career or whatnot. It's just who am I when I, as somebody who shows up in life. Right. Right. It's not the, so much the do, it's the, who, who's the person who shows up in the, in the checkout line at the grocery store with the person in front of me? Mm-hmm. Who's the person that shows up when I'm getting, uh, getting gas uh, and, I, and I converse with that person or wherever I'm at, whatever I'm doing. It's like that's but it is also the showing up for whatever, whatever needs, needs to be, to be done. done. Exactly. And that can, be, that can be the application to whatever the work is. Right. Um, right. But, 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 the, but, the, the but that's thing, not the real identity. Right. That's not the real identity. Well, identity is a big problem these days. Yeah. I've, I've been really, I don't know if you've ever read any of Ramana Maharshi. Before. I don't know who that is. Oh, I, well, I think you'd really appreciate Ramana Maharshi, but it's very, it's very, um, um, it's very like self inquiry. It's all about self inquiry, and the question that he consistently asks is, "Who am I?" <laughs> and he says, "When when you get a response to that answer, it's not right." <laughs> <laughs> who am I? And then something comes up, let that go. Because that's not who you are. Who am I? And he says that question will end all questions, and in the end, that question will dissolve too. Hmm. Who am I? That that makes sense. Although I don't know that it makes sense for everyone. No, but I mean it's it's definitely a specific specific path. But there's a whole um, something called guided self inquiry. That's kind of like a hypnosis method that's been built around it. But he was a uh, you could call him a self-realized individual from India in the early part of the 20th century. Hmm. Yeah, really profound. Yeah, it's interesting. I was listening to someone talking about Baudrillard recently, who uh, I guess had this theory about the transition of identity from some kind of common narrative, mm-hmm. you know, like a cultural or a civilizational narrative, mm-hmm. to one that has to do with basically material objects. So, um, you know, prior to the Industrial Revolution, uh, it was the social networks and um, kind of national identities that would form sense of identity for most people. And in a post-World War II world where ever more... Uh, international, globalized um, social connections were occurring. This transformed into essentially a materialist culture where people were hanging their identity on objects. Mm -hmm. Um, So it probably means something somewhat different for people to say, who am I now, than it did a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that the question, who am I, is something that only occurs at crisis moments in civilization. Yeah, I, I hear that. And I, and I think that's, the, that's normal, but I think it's a great question to ask any time. I think it's a great question <laughs> to ask, but I think that for some people it would be uh, disorienting. Yeah, because it threatens the ego. Yes. But again, so coming back to this whole thing about uh, the dilution and what was the other? Delusion. Delusion. Yeah, delusion and dilution. So, you know, 
if we're going to penetrate beyond the veil and say that fundamentally life is a, is Maya, is illusion of some form or another, and that identity is a construction based upon some illusion, then we have to acknowledge that the cultivation of illusions is perfectly compatible with that deeper understanding. And so we have to be very compassionate towards the illusions that we all nurture in order to maintain some sense of identity that's probably false, but it's perfectly fine, you know, and it's great to be fully involved in that identity, Mm -hmm. you know? So we can't even say that it's false because if Maya is the reality, then there is no real real, right? Right. So it's as real as it gets, which is basically just like fake it until you make it, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So... You know, that fits in really nicely with the new age bullshit of like, make your own reality, you know, just do it and it will be. And there's some truth to it. There is know? some truth. That, that, yeah. And that's the thing. There is some truth some. Truth to it. Yeah. Now, yeah. where is the truth part? Right. And where is the delusion part? It's kind of hard to tease those two apart. You know, it's some sense it's it comes down to being honest with yourself about what you're doing, what's going on, right? which is also not always so easy to do. No. That takes courage. It takes courage and it takes one's willingness to um, disidentify. To put aside the identity for a while, Mm -hmm. which is a a scary thing for, for, I mean, particularly... If your whole life has been wrapped up in formulating a, in, an identity, yeah, mm-hmm. and playing that role, and particularly if your life is sort of dependent upon it, right? right? Like career-wise, I think this is probably one of the reasons why people hit a crisis point mm-hmm. where it gets really difficult to yeah. maintain that whole game. Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad uh, life stripped me bare <laughs> before <laughs> I had enough time to. <laughs> really create an identity. Well, that's the, the, life, life just had its way with me. That's the blessing of suffering at an earlier age. That's right. That's the gift of falling apart too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, having like all of one's identity stripped from them um, is a real gift. I guess that, you know, in very different ways, we've both had that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's time to disidentify with this podcast this particular now. Episode. This particular episode. Okay, well, we'll keep an identity with the podcast we'll, for a little keep longer. The podcast, yeah. But this episode's this done. This episode's done. We could discard it like used skin. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, throw us a bone by subscribing to this channel visiting our social media pages, and hitting the various like, love, and clap buttons. We welcome all comments, criticisms, and random thoughts. Our email is silentassembly at protonmail.com. 
And if you want to be an angel, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash silentassembly. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home.